Turn your Bibles to John chapter 16. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 902. As you turn there, I want to tell you a story. When I was... Well, we moved when I was in preschool up to Michigan. Uh, But before that, we lived in uh, Missouri. And um, we lived in a town called Cape Girardeau, Missouri, right on the river. It's one of the great weird themes of my life that I've always lived near large bodies of water. So I've got that going for me. But if you know anything about Cape, it's pretty hilly. Okay, I think part of that is being next to the river. And one of the things that I had, one of the toys I had was called a big wheel. Okay, now some of you just got some great nostalgia, just injected right in, so good job. Uh, So Big Wheel, for those who don't know, is it's sort of this all-plastic tricycle with, as the name would suggest, one big wheel. And it began round, but over time it was this nice oval. So I've been told, I don't have a ton of clear memories on this, but I, we lived on a hill, and what I would do, I don't recommend this to all the kids out there, do as I say, not as I do, I would go on the road, and I would simply just pick up my feet, and I would careen down the hill in my big wheel, at the very bottom, sort of throwing the brakes, thus creating an oval for a wheel, because it was only plastic. I tell that story not to make you all concerned for my children, but to talk about inertia. That as I was careening down this hill, as Newton would say, an object in motion wants to stay in motion. And it would have been impossible for me as a four or five-year-old at the time to turn or to start going uphill. Because all of my force, all of my energy was going down this hill. And I want to use that as an analogy this morning because in our text today, Jesus is going to talk to the disciples about turning from sorrow to joy. And that turn, as we experience it emotionally and mentally, can often be even harder than me turning my big wheel down a giant hill. And there is sort of sad inertia or sorrowful inertia that we experience to where we feel that joy is almost impossible. 
because of our emotional inertia. And so today, as we look at our text in John 16 of how Jesus tells his disciples that their sorrow will turn to joy, we are going to look at what are those sources of joy that can turn us around when we feel hopelessly sad, when we feel overwhelmed in our sorrow and we feel that joy is impossible. So as we look at our text, we're going to see two main sources of joy. And the first one is our new life in Christ and prayer. So our big idea, if you're following along using the outline provided in your bulletin, is this. We can have full and lasting joy in our lives through our new life in Christ and prayer. So let's look. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16 through 20. Again, if you're using your outline there, your sorrow will turn to joy. Follow along as I read. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This passage has the pattern that happens many times in the Gospels where the disciples are described as having no idea what Jesus is talking about. But in addition to some humor about this, because they become the leaders of the church, Their confusion is for our benefit because it usually leads to a further explanation by Jesus. So what's confusing the disciples? Let's look at verse 16. A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. From the context, we understand this to be Jesus telling them about the crucifixion and the resurrection. So in a little while, he will die on a cross. And he will be dead for three days. But in another little while, he'll rise again, the resurrection. And they will see him. And and episodes of the disciples seeing Jesus after his resurrection are recorded at the end of the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And in verse 19, Jesus says, or John tells us that Jesus knows exactly what they're talking about. Which causes him to explain further in verse 20, not more of what is going to happen, but how they are going to experience life over these next couple days. Let's look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Okay, we've seen that before. Everybody pay attention. Jesus is going to say something important. You will le- weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus tells the disciples, you will experience pain and hurt and sorrow. And at the same time, the world, here representing the rebellious world against God, they will find joy in my death. But the crucifixion is not the end of the story, and neither is the sorrow of the disciples. In fact, we see at the end of verse 20, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And that phrase there, this idea of sorrow turning into joy is going to guard, is going to guide the rest of our understanding of the passage. That the sorrow they will feel at the crucifixion is not the end. That the sorrow you experience in your life is not the end. But through Christ, you can have joy. So let's see how this passage tells us of two specific examples of how we find joy in a world of sorrow. So point number two in your outline, your joy cannot be stolen, verses 21 to 22. Let's look at that. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For a joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, Jesus uses the analogy of childbirth. And I will do my best to describe something I have never done. Please send any angry emails to the church office. (laughs) But it's a wonderful metaphor that Jesus uses here. It is obvious that there is real intense pain in childbirth. And all of you just started rolling your eyes at me. It's okay. (laughs) But there is that moment when the child is born. And you see this in in, in your own experiences. You see this in videos all the time. That that when that child is born, the pain is still there. But it seems like it's not for that moment. That first contact of skin-to-skin contact doesn't diminish the pain that just happened. But at that moment, there is this joy that happens. Jesus relates this to his death and resurrection. That there will be real sorrow and anguish at the death of Jesus. The disciples will experience real pain and sadness. 
But just as the pains of labor are not the end of the story, neither is the crucifixion the end of the story. Because the cross and in the resurrection, just as with childbirth, there is new life. Look again at verse 21. She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. In one sense, the pain is worth it because of the joy of new life. And similarly, the pain of the cross is worth it. The sadness of Jesus' death is worth it because the death and resurrection of Jesus produces new life. What do I mean by that? When we repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Bible tells us we are new people. There are many ways that the Bible talks about that. In John 3, we talk about being born again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There is new life through the cross. We are forgiven of our sins, and we are given the hope of eternal life. We are new people who are newly made alive when we were previously dead in our trespasses and sins. And that life continues into eternity. And so Jesus is saying, even though there is the pain of the crucifixion, there is joy in that we have been made alive in Christ. And in verse 22, we see that because this is achieved, not because of our performance, but because of the work of Christ, that joy cannot be taken from us. Look at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one can steal your new life in Christ from you because you didn't earn it. You didn't make it. You didn't perform to get it. But through the completed work of Christ in his death and his resurrection, you have been given it. And when Jesus gives you something, he doesn't take it back. And no one can take it from you if Jesus has given it to you. And so the sadness that the disciples then and us now that we experience will not last forever because of the promise, because of the certainty of our new life in Christ. It cannot be taken. And therefore, it is a reliable source of joy 
when we feel that our joy has been stolen, when we feel that all we have has been taken away, what cannot be stolen is the rock of our new life in Christ to weather the storm, an anchor to hold on to as we fight for joy. Let's look at the next source of joy verses 23 to 24. So before we saw that our joy cannot be taken, here we see your joy will be full. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now again, we must first understand this as Jesus speaking to the original disciples. When he says in that day, he's talking of seeing Jesus after the resurrection. In that day you will ask nothing of me. It's best to understand this, that after the ascension, he won't be physically there with them for them to ask him for anything. But also, there's an understanding here that when Jesus is resurrected, they'll understand the puzzle. Because they'll understand why he died. And with the resurrection comes the completion of the work and so all the questions of why are you saying, why are you talking about dying that we've seen throughout the Gospels? It'll be answered because Jesus will be resurrected. But we also see a change in the relationship. We see this in verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Here he is talking about prayer. We see this in verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So now, instead of just speaking to Jesus who's standing next to him, the primary avenue of communication with Jesus is prayer to the Father through the name of Jesus. So there's a change where primary communication comes in prayer. Now we need to remind ourselves of what it means to ask something in Jesus' name. Because truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And we know what this doesn't include. If you just say Jesus' name and you ask for your own plane. There's not an expectation that God will magically have a plane appear next to you, even though he could. <laughs> it's not just, as we've talked about before in our study of John, it's not that, well, if you end your prayer with, in Jesus' name, that's sort of this magic incantation that will make all your prayers happen. And there's some that think that, and some that pray like that, and that's wrong. 
What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 is so helpful for us in this. It says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Or as one author writes, praying in Jesus' name does not involve magical incantations, but rather expresses alignment of one's desires and purposes with God. Praying in Jesus' name is praying the way Jesus would pray and the way Jesus wants you to pray. In alignment with him. So we see verses 23 and 24. When we pray in alignment with the will and purposes of God, God will give us what we need. There is a great promise here that when we pray, we will be heard. And when we ask for what we need, God will give. We need to remember Old Testament stories like Elijah and the prophets of Baal where it's sort of a matchup of prayers of whose prayers will win. And what do the prophets of Baal do at the taunts of Elijah? Well, you're just not praying loud enough. Maybe Baal is in the bathroom. <laughs> and he has the door closed, so you've got to pray a little louder. They think they are heard because of their performance. Jesus will later say in the Gospels that there are those who pray and think they will be heard because of their many words. So if you just pray a lot of words and throw in a couple fancy words, God has to answer your prayer, right? No. We pray to the Father through Christ and what Christ did on our behalf. There's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. And when we pray, when we pray not because of what we have done, but what Christ has done for us, and when we pray in alignment with Jesus, we receive what we need. And when we do that, when we pray in that way, verse 24, ask and you will receive that your joy will be full. Jesus tells us that this prayer, this way of praying and asking and receiving is a source of joy. The daily conversation of prayer is this well of joy from which we can draw. What I love about this is reminding us that no matter what is going on around us, we can pray. Prayer is not dependent on our circumstances. Now, yes, there are days where we want to pray more and days we want to pray less. <laughs> or prayer is hard and we really need to struggle in prayer. 
But you see in Scripture, you see Paul praying in jail. You see throughout Scripture God's people praying in any circumstance. And this is for us, Jesus tells us, a source of joy. Because whatever I am doing, wherever I am, the Lord hears my prayers through Jesus. Again, we think of the religious world back then where each deity sort of had its political country. And so if you're in this country, you pray to those gods. Our God is the God of the universe, and we can be in any country, in any part of his created world, and he hears us. Again, a solid source of joy that does not depend on me. This is an aspect of joy that does not depend on how I'm feeling or what I'm doing. But when I come to the Lord in prayer, it is a way that he turns my sorrow into joy. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I want to close with two already repeated applications for us this morning. Number one, you can have joy, solid joy in your life through the new life we have in Christ. We have joy that the sins of our former life are taken away. We have joy because our new life in Christ continues on into eternity. And we have joy that cannot be stolen because it is based on the completed work of Jesus Christ. And two, we can have joy because of prayer. Every day we can ask the Father through the name of Jesus for what we need. And because of what Jesus did, we have the daily conversation with our God. Do not neglect the gift of prayer because it is an avenue and a source of joy that we can rely on when we feel that the sorrow cannot be turned away when we feel stuck and overwhelmed in our sadness and our grief. We hold on to the foundation of our new life in Christ and prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and we have new life leading to eternal life with you forever. And that through the completed work of Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of grace through prayer to find help in time of need. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, I want to invite...